1: A tip of the hat and a welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 275. Guys, this is a snazzy episode. It's uh, the Wachowskis and Tom Tickver uh, in a massive directing collective. Well, massive. Okay, there's three There's three people. But when you look at their work, uh, Tom did Run Lola Run and Perfume, and, and the Wachowskis, of course, did uh, Bound and Oh the Matrix, uh, among other things. And they all directed together Cloud Atlas, which I cannot recommend to you enough. That movie is fucking... Dazzling. I. I. It's the kind of movie that you can see. That I. I want to see it three or four times because there's there's so much there's so much density with stuff that's going on in the movie that uh, that you could watch it a few times and and see a different movie each time. So I don't want to give too much away about it. I will say there are some mild spoilers in this podcast. Not nothing earth shattering, but if you wanted to go into Cloud Atlas with a with a blank slate, then maybe put this off until until after you see the movie. But uh, not to sound pretentious, but I really this was a lovely (laughs) philosophical discussion about art and filmmaking and expressing ideas and figuring out who you are. And, you know, what I learned from talking to the three of them is that they would sacrifice everything to just be able to make the kinds of things that they want to make and tell the stories that they want to tell. And uh, it was... There's no other word for it. It was kind of beautiful. It was kind of beautiful. I I really enjoyed talking to to, to all of them. Uh, Tom and Andy and Lana. Who was Lana? Is so warm and articulate, and uh, and has just a lot of really terrific ideas. And you know, it's I know that they all don't do a lot of interviews uh, normally, and it's too bad because I feel like they have a lot of great stuff to say. So I really, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Nerds podcast number 275, uh, with Tom Tickver and the Wachowskis. Now
2: entering nerdist.com.
1: What you, which, which, which leading intellectual literary? The Boston publican? Globe. The Boston Globe. Very smart. I hear we're dumping all of our tea in the harbor there. Is that? <laughs> I haven't <laughs> read it in a long time, so I may not be current. Uh, I don't know. Um, actually, no. Tom Tickver, uh, you are here, and then I, I would like to start referring to you as uh, is Wachowski Starship. <clears throat> is that is that the correct? <laughs> Is that the correct? I,
2: that, uh, it's, uh, Was people, that a joke that people you know, took seriously? It's unbelievable what pe- reporters or people will just pick up on. Not only is it is it reported on that we're Wachowski Starship in the message boards, they're saying how pretentious we are for calling ourselves. <laughs> but now, now we're actually calling ourselves the W Hotel. We've made a deal with
1: the W Hotel, and uh, that's now our new name. I want so to explain this Please refer first. to us as the W Hotel. So you guys were first Wachowski airplane. That's cor- that's correct. We were Wachowski dirigible, actually. Uh, I, by the way, I I did see Cloud Atlas, and it's fucking awesome. I heard about the movie about a month ago, when it's like with a couple of uh, like film festivals and these reports, and then and then we had Tom Hanks on the podcast, and and uh, and it was the, the movie is so fascinating to me because I don't. I mean, I guess the only way you pitch that movie is you just hand someone the Mitchell book and go, "It's here. It's this. Is that." <laughs> Mm.
0: No, we actually, you know, um, went away and wrote the script and then brought the script to people with pictures, pretty pictures to help them understand. And yeah, I think and
2: we pitched it in all the ways humanly possible,
0: including super reductionist pitches where you would walk in and they'd say, it's really complicated. <laughs> Can you help me? And said, look, it's really simple. It's very simple. Tom Hanks had already been attached at that point. And we said, Tom Hanks is a character. He's a bad guy. He meets Halle Berry. He falls in love. He becomes a good guy and he saves the human race. (laughs) (laughs) What else do you need? Uh, Sold. So when you do you guys do all of you
1: still have to pitch to studios at that point? Or do they just go, yeah, here, do whatever you want. Or is it still a huge pain in the ass? Uh, no, we took it to all the studios
2: uh, uh, in town, and they all passed uh, basically. So we don't really. First round was
3: absolute uh, constant with no. the cast,
2: with the cast that we all have the in cast. place. Really, attached. All and then us. we finally got Warner Brothers to agree to uh, pick up the domestic. So it's it's an independently
3: financed movie. It's an independent yeah. film because n- nearly ninety percent of the budget we had to find elsewhere.
0: And it's not like the independent world is full of like, you know, foresight driven, art seeking individuals either. We couldn't sell this movie in that market for a year. And it was even more profoundly disturbing is that we showed them the sort of script version with the cast Mm -hmm. and they all said no. And then even after we had the finished film, we showed it, and this included, like, to England. We could not find one distributor in England with a movie that had Hugh Grant, Jim Sturgis, Jim Broadbent. It was based on a book by a British author, and And, we still couldn't sell it. Well,
1: not to bring it back to before, but it's because we dumped their tea in the harbor. They're (laughs) still really mad about that. And so it's hard to produce films as a result. That's their long-term revenge plan. (laughs) So I'm sorry that we ruined it for you. you could be right. Could but be seriously, right. death to King George. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to get political on the podcast. Mm. I love the movie because it's, it's uh, I, I hadn't actually, I hadn't read the book. You know, when, when, you're, when you're adapting a book to a, to a, a screenplay, do you, do you want your audience to come in having read the book? Or do you like them coming in with a fresh perspective and then going, oh, now I think I'd like to read the book?
3: I think it should be both ways possible uh, I mean if if you find a way to to adapt a, a a novel and particularly of course we felt a strong urge to succeed on all levels here because we so much loved the book we really we totally fell in love with the novel first which was actually the start of the whole thing and uh, and so what you actually have to try and achieve is to uh, you could say adaptation is an adequate word but sometimes it sometimes it even feels that interpretation is more uh, mm. a nicer term mm. to find a way to say we're taking something uh, that we want to preserve in its essence but we translate it into a completely different medium and um, obviously a different sort of narrative. Yeah, And basically it's, uh, as David Mitchell later put it, the way he experienced the way we took it apart and put it together again, he said, like, okay, I had this huge pile of Lego pieces that I had built my... Super complex castle with that was the novel, and then we took all those pieces apart again <laughs> completely and rebuilt it, yeah, uh, but with his pieces,
1: I wonder if it's kind of fun, i mean as I guess as I, i'm I'm not a director, and nor do I ever want to be because it just like the the prospect of what you have to shoulder through that process. Is does not sound fun to me, <laughs> but um, but oh, the it is. but the idea of well, and that's why you should be a director. Um, <laughs> but the idea of uh, you know, the Lego idea of piecing stuff together, particularly the movie like this, which seems on the surface seems non-linear, but when you watch yeah. the movie, you go, oh no, actually, there's a total linear story that's happening here <clears throat> that you have to, you know, like you said, assemble more, almost more like a collage in in a weird sort of way. Is yeah. that is that as a director, is do you approach it from that point and Go, oh, this actually is fun because of the way we have to tell the story.
2: Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it was, it, it was like that when we uh, had dismantled the book and you know put all the scenes on index cards and you know you're finding the connections and you're uh, making all these uh, finding these reflective characters and these connective moments where one scene in one era will pay mm-hmm. off another scene in another era uh but also in the editing room where you uh where you notice, uh, uh you know see the editorially uh it was much more fluid because uh, you, uh there were so many connective elements uh just by having the actors play different characters so you could uh, uh, uh suddenly uh, one scene you'd have uh, um uh, nurse noakes played by hugo weaving uh and you'd cut to another scene where uh, Hugo Weaving is uh, Bill Smoke, and or somewhere it's implied that Bill Smoke is around, and suddenly that scene uh, has a bit more danger to it. Or uh, Hugo Weaving as uh, Thaddeus Kesselring, the, the composer, it uh, instantly uh, uh, added this weight to the scene because you knew that
1: Hugo was a killer in some of the other uh, in some of the other narratives. I think. I enjoyed watching all of the noses. I know that sounds crazy, but I enjoyed like with Susan Sarandon. The the first, they're like, "Oh, I love that!" It just just watching for an actor, I would be surprised if they didn't all immediately say yes when you told them what you wanted to do. That they get to play all these different characters.
0: There were people who were afraid of it. There were a lot of people who who backed away or who wouldn't even meet to us. Fortunately, most of the people who are on the top of our list were super enthusiastic. And a lot of them, people like Hugo Weaving, have a, have done this sort of thing before in their lives where they've done it, but they've, they're they only allowed to do it in theater. It's like there's a rigidity to the conventional forms of storytelling in cinema. And a lot of those conventional forms are never even questioned, let alone uh, sort of does anyone ever try to really experiment with them. We're always drawn to... to trying to transcend those basic conventions so and some some people will look at it and say you know oh i see that prosthetic nose that's like totally fake that's not susan sarandon's <laughs> nose i don't believe it and then you know but they won't they won't ever question the other direction of the convention they'll never say you know something like you know we all know or I mean, how many people out there believe that Denzel Washington can fly a plane upside down? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just the conventional way that we've always done it. Here's the star. Of course, the star can suddenly be whoever their character that they're playing. But nobody says, well, this is just convention. This is just the way we've done it before. And so people think that they, that, that, Convention somehow translates into believability. Right. Somehow more than a fake nose does. But <laughs>
3: <clears throat> and for
0: us, we find the fake nose is a, a little more interesting, and and it has a subtext to it. It has a the idea of all of these. There's an idea behind all of these people playing different parts. Yeah. That to us is even more. It's more attractive than just the conventional. The star plays the the person who drives the plane upside down what we like is that there's a subtext about humanity and and the transcending of differentiation that we are attracted to
3: it's the i mean I, i believe there's a big joy element about the complicity you have with the audience you as an audience at least i do that when i watch a movie have with a film when you when you, of course, subconsciously or on a certain level, you realize, you know, the tricksy part of some situations, and as long as it doesn't pull you out, it's actually for me, it's part of the uh, of the beauty of experience, uh, uh, an aesthetic creation in general. You you are drawn into the narrative. You are like, you know, you're com- hopefully, of course, completely immersed in in the story, and yet, of course, there's moments where it's joyful to admire or to be involved in, you know, the actual creation of the illusion and knowing that it is of course made, but liking the way it's, I mean, I mean, understanding choices and following the choices and giving those choices a meaning beyond only what's happening in the plot.
1: I always think that I assume a director's hardest job is to have a consistent voice throughout a movie and to keep everything coherent. Obviously, you are used to working together as a team but then you add basically there's a directorial threesome that's happening and so how do you you're not only assembling a story through different ages and times and realities but you're also assembling several different points of view at the same time so how do you stay consistent and keep the movie feeling like the uh, one movie all the way through when there's three of you
0: well we think it's interesting I mean especially someone who's been on the other side of the Cameron actor, there is a there is a mistake in construction uh, about how we understand cinema as an art form. And that has to do with trying to project our traditional, um, 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 the, the traditional way that we understand art being made by these singular individuals. So there's the the writer or the painter up on the mountaintop who's, like, working in isolation, creating this, you know, piece of truth or beauty and in order to understand that you relate it to this one person. So they we take that and we try to project it onto cinema and we say, well, there has to be one person in order to have a voice or a singular um, sort of perspective. But cinema isn't the same. It's a different art form. It's a social art form. And it's created by a group of people. It's tradition is more related to theater. And it's it's like a a branch of evolution. You have the Neanderthal over here and you have the Homo sapien over here. It's like they're totally <laughs> different. And we like we like the social art form. We like collaboration. Andy and I, you know, if you had a, like a singular artist might have a mono perspective. Well we have we have a more bifocal or a sort of like (laughs) we worked we're able to achieve three dimensionality we have the two views and then we get tom and then now we have a quantum view because it's like time and space it just becomes more um um for us more interesting because there's more perspectives on the vision yeah and in and it relates in the exact same way that it relates to working with an actor or a dp or a storyboard artist it's a it's an interaction that creates the piece of art. It's not a it's not a ever a monologue, it's always a dialogue. You know, even Francis Ford Coppola is making Apocalypse Now, he runs up against Marlon Brando's perspective at the end. And that dialogue between the two is what results in those scenes. It's not it wouldn't be possible by he couldn't make it by himself. Yeah and that's why uh cinema we think is so unique and special and and uh every piece of art that's made as a result of this collective needs to be understood through the lens of that collective.
3: Yeah. You know, I, obviously it is uh it, it needs the the deep affection and that the love that we share with each other the the way that we really feel like we're very connected the three of us in so many levels i mean in taste issues you need to of course make sure that you feel like you're living on a similar aesthetic uh, or ideal planet and when it comes to art and also when it comes to social encounters and that was one of the magical things when we met that it felt like it was really love at first sight we were completely taken by meeting each other and um, there was this thing that at the same time we were directors and we knew okay it's pretty hard i mean i'm in German director <laughs> and there's yeah. these guys from Chicago. Are we actually going to spend time with each other? Are <laughs> we going to make friendship happen? So they actually went to quite some lengths to try and make it work by... They, they basically put brought two productions that, uh, that, that they uh, worked on to, to Berlin. And part of it was actually that we planned on spending time together. And uh, as it is with directors, my plans were working in different directions. And the moment they, literally the moment, the day they arrived in Berlin to start filming on Viva Vendetta, my plane was taking off uh, to Spain for me to film Perfume. And I was gone for a year. So we were like always calling each other, saying, Oh, that did not really work out. (laughs) So (laughs) what do we do next? And then they came back for Speed Racer, and I took off to do the international. It really was. Uh, it it was a bit of a fate feeling about it. And we felt like, okay, the only way to get out of this problem is if we make a movie together.
1: Yeah, well, and the whole idea of making films, we just, I spent all day yesterday shooting a video for our YouTube channel. And I'm like, oh, if no one watches it, we'll just make another one the next week. But you're (coughs) spending years of your life (laughs) On a project, which you still have, you know, the more you do it, the more you kind of go, well, it'll probably be okay, (laughs) but you still don't know. And at the end of that time, it could just be like, well, fuck, we gave it a shot, you know, and then you've spent (laughs) you've spent all that time. So it really is an investment on every possible level,
3: Yeah, which is why you better make sure that you have at least the possibility in your in your perfect version of what you're working on. That it is worth it because it's true. It's it takes your life apart, and this particular one was a beast in terms of its massiveness. And you know, it was not so much the scale and scope that we we love that kind of work, but the, the the actual fact to even bring it to screen and to get people to invest in it was so so hard and so we were beaten down so many times that also I think only that needed three directors to survive, you know, because it was always maybe one or two of us were like near collapse and there was always the third person saying like, come on, get up, let's move on.
1: I, I, we, think, I think that's important for young filmmakers to hear, by the way, because I think a lot of them just assume like, oh, I'm just getting beaten down now because I'm a kid or I'm young or no one knows who I am. But the fact that you guys are where you are and you've directed the films you have and you still have oh, to yeah. fight for a movie that has Tom oh, Hanks yeah. and it Halle Berry. Yeah,
0: yeah,
2: our financing dropped out. Like three days before we were meant to start shooting. And we had to make up the gap ourselves. <laughs> oh, shit. And we
0: had already waived all our fees. The film has made entirely as an act of love in the exact same way that all young filmmakers begin. The film has a, a purity of almost amateur intent because we, we didn't get paid. We put our own money into it. We mortgaged the house to pay for it. And, in the, and when you talk about like what is the value of things... Right. The value of this film, no matter what it paid to me, I mean, if there's we don't we don't even think about it really as a potential um, financial reward. It's like it will never really uh, be equal to the value of what we've experienced making it the value of having our lives intersect for this period, the value of making this piece of art that is so unique and unconventional and has so much of our own lives woven into it. I mean, every day we keep saying, oh my God, it's like so much like the movie. We keep (laughs) like using the lines of the movie to like (laughs) speak. We don't even have like our own dialogue, original dialogue anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And it's um, it will all yeah, no matter what happens, I'm so grateful for the fact that it exists that it will be there forever, that it will represent to me this moment in my life, which has been so important. And, you know, money is such a small part of measuring the value of making art. Mm -hmm. And it's sad that in our world that these young filmmakers are out there and thinking that, Even in the subtext of your question, there's this idea, will it be worth it? Yeah, it's like, not even it young
2: filmmakers. It's like how it. the movies are perceived by the public, by yeah. the critics, by, you know, journalists. Oh, is this movie successful? Well, what was the box office? Yeah. And, right. You know, if it doesn't make a certain uh, amount of money, then it's not successful. Yeah.
1: But I think we're coming into a time where people understand the value of cultural impact. I mean, you know, some of the most popular television shows, for instance, don't Mm -hmm. even have more than a million viewers, which by, you know, old television standards would, the show would have not lasted five minutes. And so Mm -hmm. I think people really do understand that something can permeate the culture, even if it doesn't make a billion Mm dollars and that that's still, that's still important. I do want to pitch the idea to all of you. Uh, just stay with me for a second. Um, and I'm being dead serious. Uh, cloud animatlas where you basically do animated deep dives into each one of the worlds that you go into because i want to see so much more about neo soul <laughs> that uh, you know or or the or the valley dwellers like i, I just i want more of those stories mm-hmm. now to find out like what got them there how did it evolve to that place who are those people you know so it's really uh if Oh, that's Kyle. He's our show PA. Hi, Kyle.
0: Hello,
1: Kyle. Uh, conveniently a half hour late. Uh, but uh, so much traffic in Los Angeles. What? County. You come from Ventura County? <laughs> Jesus Christ. I left at 9.30. Oh. All right. We'll just sit quietly in the corner and try to. He's got recomp- road rage right now. Be careful. <laughs> He's got a gun in that bag. Um, what's the the actor who played Frobisher? What's his name? What's his ben name? Bouchon. Oh my god! The scenes with him and Broadbent <laughs> are, fuck, uh, fu- amazing, amazing. That guy. What else? I I definitely have seen him and stuff. Tom. What else? is
3: I made a movie with him that was called Perfume. Oh, the story the perfume. of a murderer. He was the guy. He was the the, the murderer. He's also <laughs> the in the uh, the hour that BBC show, right? And he's, and he's going to be Q in the next Bond. Yeah. <laughs> What, yes, I didn't know that he's yet. He's a new Q.
1: <laughs> that's pretty, he, you can't take your eyes off the guy, like, he's, yeah, he's you're fantastic. just like, holy shit. Um, but I, 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 when I heard about that, you guys partnering up, I, I don't mean to sound obnoxious with, I'm, with everything I'm about to start saying, but I guess that's just what I do. But, um, when I heard that you guys were collaborating on this thing, I felt this, like, oh my god, it told, I totally get it. You know, when I think of like going back, when I think of Matrix, a Run Lola Run, mm. I think of these sort of like mm. these contained universes where you sort of question the idea of like free will and determinism. I mm. think, mm. Or at least that's what I took no, out no, of it. No,
3: that's really. I mean, it's it's been part of our evolution as uh, as lovers <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that is that is this kind of strangely miraculous thing that um, Run Lola Run and. The Matrix, the first Matrix, they um, they opened in the US actually in the same month, really. I mean, back to back, almost and the
0: same amount of time that Tom and I were born apart. Yeah, oh shit! Me, and How's that for Cloud Atlas? Yes, and <gasps> oh, it's
3: all connected. <laughs> yes, and of course, of course, we we. I mean, of course, uh, in scale terms, are on completely different levels, the films. But in in terms of the approach to you know cinema in general, you know, as a as an exciting um, medium that can still, while it's trying to, you know, g- get you involved on in every, you know, uh, you know, joy level, can still be inspiring and even open up philosophical questions, and you know, not lose touch with what you know should be happening with an audience being involved with it and always taking you know to the edge of your seat at the same time. So we we and there's it goes to degree that you know what you said content wise we totally felt the same there's are they're, they're relatives those two films and there's even moments you know there's a moment when the main male character dies in both films and the girl leans over resurrects and him. resurrects him it's both the movies same movies. both <laughs> movies have the same situation we feel like hmm, we should really try and call each other <laughs> and so we were sending each other love letters through whatever agents and friends and took a couple of years but then we finally met and um, never let go I of I loved sense.
0: Lola so much I saw Lola I walked in I watched the movie I walked out I bought a ticket I went back in <laughs> watched it again and then my hair turned became <laughs> pink dry. I was gonna yeah it's just the same <laughs> it was spontaneous Dread conception, dreadception.
2: My, mine turned pink too, but not the hair on my head.
1: Oh, that's interesting. That's a new take on that. That's right. <laughs> that's a cotton candying. It's, right. a, it's a, it's an act. I, I would assume vejazzled. V- vejazzled. Yeah. Vejazzled. Your mangina. That's right. That's. <laughs> I, I always feel like I got to make that area prettier somehow. Like I don't know if you that. You got to dress it up. If that means that I have to put a clown wig on it, I'm fine with the it. Clown nose works too.
3: <laughs> is, is this a morning program or an evening program?
1: <laughs> it's been no m- evening program. It's whenever. It's, it's a, we're doing a podcast. We're doing a podcast. Yes, people will jam it into their ears whenever they whatever they feel like it. I I remember. I mean, you know, uh, the when I first saw the Matrix trailer was in it was a crowded theater, um, and then. You know, Keanu was fa- was famous at that point, but really, people just kind of were like, "Oh, the Bill and Ted guy." Mm. And so, in the opening, I remember it so distinctly—the experience. It was one of the most insane trailer watching experience I've ever had, where the polarity of the audience changed like almost immediately when mm. Keanu first comes on screen, and he's like, "Whoa!" People in the audience kind of chuckled as the trailer went. By the end of it, everyone was like, "Holy!" Like it, compl- I mean, literally flipped. Mm-hmm. So, you know, was, I, I'm just sort of curious what, you know, like, was that sort of your intention with the trailer is to start people in one place and then just like, and we're going to fucking blow your mind.
0: Well, it's interesting that people love to talk about the um, kind of mechanics of how you you sell a movie, which is cool and an interesting conversation like there's been a lot of dialogue about the trailer of cloud atlas what for us is sort of more interesting is that we we started off with uh the matrix as a script we had lots of concepts we had lots of art and the thing was that it was a we were trying to to investigate certain philosophical um ideas in a, a genre that was traditionally not as philosophical in cinema. It was always philosophical in literature, which is why we've always been drawn to science fiction. Science fiction, when we were growing up, is one of the most experimental literary forms that, w- that was being published. But we had this moment where we were trying to um, sell the studio on, on Matrix, and they came back and they said... No, we've uh, we've run the numbers. We've uh, we've looked at this in depth. And uh, all of us, all of these like very, you know, college educated accountant types are sitting there. We've got it figured out. We've modeled it. it. It doesn't work. And we're like, "What what do you mean you modeled?" And it's like, "Look." And they hold up this thing and it's like Johnny mnemonic Keanu Reeves virtual reality action equals no box office, <laughs> and so Matrix is underneath that, filled in all the blanks. <laughs> Matrix, Keanu Reeves, virtual reality, equal action. No box office. And we're in this meeting, and we're like, Well, you can't compare them, they're different. Yeah, we're different from that director, it's different. And they're like, Nope, it's the same. And we're there for hours trying to debate whether it was the same. Now, no one would compare those two movies in their head. No one would say they're the same. And yet, here we are, cut to essentially 12 years later, 11 years later, no, 12 years later, we're in another room, same room, and they're saying, you know, multiple storylines, different (laughs) love story uh, (laughs) equals the fountain no box office.
1: But doesn't that kind of say to you, like, oh, na- now you should feel like, oh, I think we're doing something right because every time this happens, I mean, <laughs> it's like it's like trying yeah. to explain, uh, it's like trying to explain a painting to a robot, yeah. or you're like, no, you just <laughs> uh, you have to, you know, so you're trying to explain to these accounts, yeah. like you got to feel it, and they're like, yeah. that's not
0: compute, yes, and then exactly, and they. And even the way the movie is about eternal recurrence and we keep ending up in these exact same places and <laughs> we're saying the same things to some of the same people. And they're like, and they still does not compete, does not compete.
1: <laughs> That's what I want. I, I really, you know, when people watch Cloud Atlas and we're obviously not spoiling too much, but but I think it's, I want people to understand when you go in, don't just look for uh, linear character arcs. Like look for thematic commentaries on the nature of humanity i think is an important i think if you go in with that you know, like that, that's a really, that's a really powerful, I think a really powerful piece of sort of what tied everything, everything all together. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Don't go in with any preconceived notions. Leave your baggage
1: at home when you go to the movies. Seriously. That's... And turn off your cell phones. Come on. <laughs> Seriously.
2: Some
3: well, we've fucking... said that before that there is a, there's a, there's some substance to the idea that the actual main character of the movie is humanity, you know? Right. So, I mean, the, obviously we've got Tom Hanks and Halle Berry and I mean, we've got, the movie has many uh, through lines that are carried by um, singular actors, but <clears throat> they kind of i think looking back, which is quite similar to the novel you don 't focus on any of them. you really focus on uh, on us yeah as a whole, and of course in particular ourselves as the person that then leaves the room or uh, left the book behind
1: yeah, did you say you guys had a was it, was it, did you say there was a party last night
3: that it was, yes.
1: <laughs> Why? I was curious. When you came in and you are like, oh, it was a crazy party last night.
3: <laughs> yes, we uh, had a family celebration yeah, last night. Yeah,
0: family's all out for the premiere tomorrow- tonight. Yeah. So to
1: do you feel done with it now? Is there like a weird postpartum depression where it's like, well, that's that baby's born?
2: Ah.
0: We, well, there's this
2: we've saved the afterbirth actually so oh, good are we gonna we're cook fr- it yeah we're,
0: we're gonna keep it in the refrigerator like a like a wedding <laughs> cake right we're gonna <laughs> eat it in a year from now
3: fry it up with some it's a, some we have, and onion. that's good cloud there's Atlas some, there's, afterbirth there's some mellow in the air this for us I and mean, we've lived together for four years now we've been like you know more than family it's been like a threesome and And with all these people around, you know, all these people, I mean, of course, our partners, you know, who are super important. But also, I mean, it's this family thing that has, oh, I mean, movies have that very often. But I I think all of us have never experienced it to this extent. The way you're interwoven, that the movie stories and the movie experience itself is so much interwoven with your own life. And also with, you know, ups and downs of your own life. And now we're so, we feel so bonded that, um, you know, in a way it's absurd to even think about stopping you know and I mean you know we still have some you know we kind of enjoy promoting the movie even though there's something absurd about it but the fact that it holds us together and that you know we get to you know, it's sometimes is very joyful even though in absurd moments when you feel like okay how do we take get a new take on that question and uh, then you know sometimes one of us comes up with something we all haven't heard ever and there's a there's a it's a it's there's a beauty to that kind of procedure of you know revisiting your own movie by talking about it publicly and uh, I, I I enjoy it very much and I know that I kind of dragged the two of them a little bit with me because I said like I'm not gonna go alone into this, <laughs> and it's been very, it's been, it's been actually lovely, and uh, so, so yeah, I'm now giving birth is a bit, uh, yeah, a bit strange.
1: How is the is the press process? Is it okay or is it sort of like? Uh, I mean, I guess maybe don't want to say, but it, how has it been so far?
2: Um it's uh, you know it's difficult to talk about yourself and your <laughs> art and endlessly uh uh but you know it's been all right i mean there there's this um there's this feeling uh that we have gotten that you know some of the press took our uh our uh our desire to not talk to them they took it personally like it was about you know you know it was about us yeah the, judging and it wasn't like that we we just like our anonymity and uh it's precious and uh, once you give it up that's it you know you're not a virgin anymore and uh so uh you yeah, we had our 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 vow <laughs> that we had written down uh and uh, so, I don't know. It's been uh, it's been fine.
1: I know. It feels weird. I, I mean, even, even like when you get comics together and you start talking about stand-up at a certain point, you're just like, we sound like, what are we doing? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, let's just go make the stuff and then not have to analyze it to death afterwards. Yeah, I
2: mean, we live in this world where it's this instantaneous gratification. Okay, I just saw this movie. Let me Google it and find out what it was about so I can know what it's about. And, uh, when we were kids, we'd go to the movies and we'd, you know, our parents would take us to, sometimes they'd take us to these triple features and we'd go see a movie. Then we'd go have breakfast and then, you know, we'd sit and we'd talk about it. And, you know, that sort of thing has gone away a little bit. And, uh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I resent the fact that I have to, you know, you know, write the movie, make the movie, edit the movie. And now I got to talk about it and define what it is, you know, a movie should the a movie going experience should change over the course of your life. I mean, I look back on what we did with Bound and that movie means something a little differently to me now than I'm, you know, 14 years removed from it and I can I have a bit more insight into it. But, you know, if I'm over there my younger self talking about Bound and basically defining it in front of a microphone like this, then uh, It doesn't. uh, It doesn't allow for any sort of growth or change in terms of what the actual intent was, and not only that, but just the idea of film as a collaborative medium. You know, uh, a lot of people put a lot of ideas into uh, making a movie, and it's not. uh, I am uncomfortable uh, defining what all of those ideas are. It's uh, presumptuous.
1: Yeah. Also, you don't want to tell the people too much. You, there, there's something in the unwrapping of a movie emotionally when you're watching it. You don't want to tell people too much, like, do this, feel this, watch yeah. this. Like, you want them, because you have this massive moving canvas, and you want people to sort of absorb however it's going to affect them.
0: But people actually want that, and, and people uh, defend and fight for that in a way. They, There's there's a, there's a um, we always thought that it was interesting that nobody wrote about the idea that, that was something we immediately thought of when we started working on the first Matrix. He we said, well, you know, actually all movies are Matrixes. You go in and you sort of plug into them, and they kind of coddle you and swaddle you, and they tell you what to feel, and they tell you what to think. They tell you the music tells you how to be, where you, where to be emotionally. <laughs> They're always constantly informing your your understanding and belief of this world that is in front of you that is being projected in front of you the the, the platon on the platonic cave wall and what we were wondering is could you encourage people to abandon that dynamic could you encourage people could you encourage an audience to actually try this other form of engagement where you you put the audience sort of through what Neo went through, the um, three movies where you, you, you have these rules and you have this traditional model that everyone loves and enjoys. You know, the first movie is um, the most traditional movie. And then the second movie shatters all of those traditions. And then the third movie says, okay, where do we go after post-modernity? Where do we go when we've shattered all of these things and deconstructed all of these things? How, what do we do next? And the movie tries to asks you to participate in it in a way that the first movie doesn't, and people get upset. They don't like it. They don't. They think that there's something um, uh, often antagonistic in the idea of not telling them what it means or to presume that you can have any meaning at all. Yeah, there is this like. And I don't mind it. Like I think that there's value to entertainment in the world, but I think that there's value to making art. I don't think they're the same pursuit. They can have things that cross over. Like art can be entertaining, or entertainment can have a a, a sort of dimension of meaning that is is in in the work. But I hate when they attack each other. Like as if the people who are defending entertainment say that all art is pretentious and stupid and if you say one thing that sounds like an idea they want to just burn it like it's like <laughs> the the barbarian the Christian barbarians burning the libraries like we hate ideas, <laughs> <laughs> all ideas are pretension. <laughs> Can't you just feel it, man? Well, this I it? I just want to laugh, I just want to have a good time.
1: <laughs> Cloud Atlas is definitely a movie that I want. I, I, I feel like I want to see it a couple of times now that I sort of now that I absorbed it the first time, now I want to go back and see where all the connective points were and go, oh, that from that, that's setting up that, or that's that. Uh, But when I first... Do you guys still have those... So How many cinematic life-changing experiences do you think we get in our lives? Like, you see a movie like Run, Lola, Run, you see a movie like Matrix, and then it slightly alters your worldview, and you go, oh, fuck, a movie can be that? And then you get a little sad that you can't experience it for the first time again. (laughs) You know, because you've seen it, and you every time you see it, you experience it differently. So do you still have, are, are there still things that you see that you're like, oh, shit, I'm surprised? Oh, well, yeah.
0: All the time. Yeah. All the time. It's
2: Roy, like, Anderson. It's
0: Roy Anderson. Roy Anderson's movie. Go movies. watch his
2: movies. He's okay. unbelievable. Swedish guy, You, the Living, and Songs from the Second Floor.
0: You'll keep having those experiences as long as you keep um, um, being... Um, given the opportunity to abandon your perspective—that's what happens once you become so rooted in your perspective, and you keep. That's your you 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 can't escape the gravity of your own um, taste and your own ideas about the world. As soon as you can't escape that gravity anymore, then you will stop having those experiences. Oh
1: shit, that's getting old. That what you're talking about is turning into an old right. person It's yeah, just like get lots off my of lawn. Old
0: people who have inc- who can experience that all the time. Because sure, they have. They don't, they, don't, they don't feel that gravitational pull. They let go. Art is, a, art is an invitation to abandon your perspective. Art always says, come with me. Look at the world in a different way. And you can always fly off. You can always be Peter Pan. You can always extend yourself as long as you let go of those things that hold you in your perspective.
1: When you're when you're kind of exploring these philosophical ideas through the movie and I you know, I'm sure you go in with some preconceived notions about what you want to say, but is is a lot of it sort of like just you as people just throwing a bunch of stuff out there that you're trying to express and then looking at it and going, Oh, that's what I was trying to say. I mean like, do you learn from your own stuff?
3: Well, that is in the nature of I think our particular work. I think it's actually what happens to most artists, but in, in this particular work because it's film There's so many amazing people who come to you and give you something you didn't know. I mean, mean, the most obvious uh, part of it being, you know, we work on a script for years and we uh, prep a movie for ages. We do all the design, you know, with the artists, you know, with production designers and you have the cinematographer come in with all these ideas that, you know, they all become part of it. And then still you set sort of a stage for the actual shooting, which, you know, in a process that we had, which was altogether four years, Make, making nothing but this movie, uh, the shooting only is three months. You know, we always feel like, oh yeah, that's it's really important, obviously. But what it is, at least in the way we work, it's setting a stage, mostly for the actors. You know, being as prepared as you can be, having thought about most of the things you can think about, and then suddenly being thrown at with hundreds of things you could never even have imagined about a scene which is but of course brilliant actors do to you it's the yeah. most amazing wonderful and of course exciting thing that you can imagine because suddenly they go oh right the way he does it is something i didn't even know that that could be the scene you know i mean there's this there's this, this is this too much of a spoiler to talk about the scene in the with Tom and Hugh
1: i'm going to tell people at the top of the show like there are some mild <clears throat> light spoilers
3: so it's probably just because it's one of those scenes that I think we all imagine to be amazing, but because of other reasons, you know. There's a scene where um, Tom Hanks one of Tom Hanks's characters leans over on over Hugh Grant, and is who plays a cannibal. Who plays a cannibal exactly? <laughs> and, and Tom Hanks plays a, a, a valet's man from Savages of the Future, and uh, he is unbelievably angry and full of rage and revenge desire and has a knife and Hugh Grant is asleep so what is he going to (laughs) do and uh, the whole idea of course of you know you know going on set and knowing okay we've got Tom Hanks with a big knife leaning over Hugh Grant ready to slit his throat already was so intense as an idea in itself because of course you can't avoid all the other projections that come along with 'Cause the actors that are on screen too at the same time and yet, yet you are involved in the actual narrative of of the plot yeah and then seeing that tom in this moment not only pulled off the intensity of the moment itself you know which is intense in itself but also referred to all the other characters he was basically um Uh, playing all the way through this movie all these other people that are connected to his let's say genetic string that he's representing or like all the incarnations of the soul that he's playing Mm -hmm. they all happen to run through his face or through his bones while he's acting and is kind of fighting with himself will I kill him, will I not kill him and see that, of course, on screen and realizing, oh my God, I, we, I, I never knew that this would be what the scene would be about. You know, it's so much, it's a million times richer than, it was already rich in my opinion, but it became a fully new experience to watch just because of this actor coming on screen and doing something that I have never never would imagine. So this is what you do when you make a movie. You have constant, this is just one example and it happens in every department. I mean, imagine what those makeup designers did to us. You know, when when we talked to, you know, Jeremy Woodhead, <laughs> Daniel Parker, these two guys, you go like, Oh, can you can you um well can we make Jim Sturgis be, you know, a good looking Asian guy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then they come back to t- t- three days later and after eight hours with Jim Sturgis in the in this little box and you go and people he walks past you and nobody greets Jim Sturgis. <laughs> right. Nobody knows it's him. Because everybody thinks who's this Asian guy on set? Is he hanging I mean around? that's just that's something you imagine but then when it happens to you it is it is different of course you know and it's also different because things happen that you you couldn't know in advance
1: yeah what do you guys like to do do you read comics or do you play a game what's your what's your free time what's what's your you time well we haven't had a lot so uh, (laughs) from memory
2: uh, lots of reading uh, lots of watching listening some playing yeah, Some point.
0: We used to play a lot of video games, but time, don't have as much time. These
3: yeah. Days. Yeah, all of us.
0: But reading, we can't give up. Reading's too important.
1: Yeah. What are you reading now that you like?
0: We just, I just gave Tom this book.
3: The Swerve. It's
0: unbelievable. Change your life book right here.
3: All right. Stephen Goldblatt
0: some surprise winner, resonant with uh, Claude non nonfiction, even though it describes some relationship to Dan Brown on the back cover. Do not be con- <laughs>
1: confused by this. <laughs> Don't be confused by the Dan Brownism. That's that's a that's a marketing person right there. That, throw a guy's name on there that people have heard of. Maybe they'll yeah. the, maybe they'll pick up the book. The book
0: is beautiful. This idea of knowledge in the movie. There's a um, there's a uh, an exploration of how art is often a consequence that ripples out and that can interconnect um, time periods and human beings and transcend these kinds of differentiations. Like David did this beautiful thing in the book, David Mitchell. Uh, he, He took these traditional genres that are separated and these traditional sort of time periods that are separated and by inserting them into each other, in your mind, you sort of begin to dissolve these conventional barriers between these time periods and genres. So you say like, you know, we all in our lives have said, oh, the past, that's different from us. They didn't, they were different back then. They didn't understand things like we do. They, they were less evolved than we are. And in the future, you know, we're not there yet. We can't think about that yet. That's, You know, I have no responsibility for that. I have responsibility for my time, my family, my moment now. And what he, David, reminds us by subtly inserting these things into each other is that it's much more continuous and contiguous than we want to believe. Our humanity is really in the dissolution of all of those things and actually trying to Find a perspective or a a way of inhabiting your understanding, your consciousness that's more ocean like, that sort of permeates all of these traditional barriers. And this book talks about how art can be buried, can can have an impact, and then be buried essentially for the dark. For the, this unbelievable book written by Lucretius, who is a disciple of Epicurus. He um, he wrote this book and it's buried for essentially 1,200 years and then it gets rediscovered and that launches the Renaissance. There's nothing but 1,200 years of the church's totalitarian oppression of all intellectual pursuits until this book resurfaces and sort of gives birth to the modern age again. And you think like, 1200 years of development and evolution <laughs> lost. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh,
3: the beauty of this whole idea that one book, and actually in this case, you know, we're talking 14th century, one book is like one copy. You know, and oh, we're, right. we're not saying like one book who, which was lying around with a thousand copies. One uh, book. copy that is retrieved from some archives changes history in this kind of to, to this extent is, is it kind of beautifully ripples through all the way until Cloud Atlas, where in, in the movie, if you remember it, which is taken from the book, of course, you know, the guy, there's, you know, throughout those six storylines, you know, there's in 18th, 19th century, there's a guy who writes a journal that, again... Robert Frobisher in the 30s later reads and is inspired by to create his composition but also writes beautiful letters to his lover who reads them until you know into the 70s they're being found in the 70s by the journalist who is thinking about those letters and trying to figure out the crime that she's investigating being ultimately inspired by two in order to solve it her story then is written into a book by her young friend who turns it into a Uh, You know, her story into a book that is being read by Timothy Cavendish in present day, which is Jim Broadbent's character, who reads that manuscript as it becomes his personal Bible in prison, basically in the elderly home. And, you know, it keeps going like that, because then he writes his story. Into a book that is being turned into a movie, where Tom Hanks, as an actor in the future, plays the leading part, which is ultimately the inspiration for Son Mi, the fabricant who lives in 2,200 <laughs> Seoul. I mean, it's in Korea to spark a revolution. It's you.
1: You guys must have loved the show Connections. <laughs> do you remember the show Connections? Um, yeah,
0: I thought a couple times. Oh, mm-hmm.
1: you would love it. It's yeah. a. It's this old. It's this is an older British show, and it's yeah. basically like. In this episode of Connections, I'm going to show you how the invention of the the ore led to the micro... You know, like, and they basically just, it just sort of, it walks you through all these bizarre, where it's kind of the, um, the sort of tangential where just sort of circumstances just sort of brush up against just exactly like what you were talking oh, about nice. but it actually it. is about it's about things that exist yeah. in our in our modern oh, world that and it, tr- is it old like it's old like, yeah 60, yeah james 80s? um remember his name James uh Fuck, <laughs> <laughs> brain why are you failing me uh i I'm wanna i I'm want get his name because it's uh I, I I think you guys would love the series and the
0: I the auxiliary lobe is now being <laughs> But, but, oh, my God. Access.
1: I would love to have you narrate like every time I go into like an intense thought process because that would make it so much cooler. Hmm. The eyebrow goes up. Uh, J- I, this is me. Hang on. I know this is irritating. But uh, oh, James Burke. James Burke. Uh, it was a series in the 70s and then they kind of revamped it a little bit in the 90s. But it's it is exactly that idea. And it's a fun, breezy sort of, uh, you oh, know, great. very British and academic and fun and out thinking outside the box. And um and so uh, and so, I recommend that. So are you guys watching any television shows? If you're watching TV? Um,
3: yeah. Well, uh, television is interesting nowadays, yeah. It is. It's probably more interesting than cinema sometimes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's been a sort of interesting topic because we, you know, all, I think all time periods um, experience aesthetic death. That's something that happens during our lives. The things that we grew up loving, they suddenly change, or I mean, they, they don't suddenly, they they change over time, they become something else. So when we were young, the things that we fell in love with that made us want to be filmmakers were these really large canvas films that were about ideas and were meant for adults. And um, that has sort of ch- changed somewhat in a lot of the... Big ideas and adult themed narratives are actually being done on television now, and they're not really being done on large canvas sort of formats. And we wanted to make something that was for us a part of the aesthetic and a part of the uh, a part of our love of cinematic form in the same way that David sort of threw his arms around all these different literary forms in the novel and and did it out of a kind of love but wanted to reinvent it at the same time. So there's something that is in Cloud Atlas, which is resonant against both this traditional sort of classic love that we have for cinema, but it's influenced structurally and somewhat content-wise by... uh, Things that are being done in television and TV shows, like the the multi branched narrative, is very common in television. You see it a lot. I mean, yeah. lost, you know, past and present and potential future, all uh, being explored simu- with a simultaneity. But um, um, w- we miss those things on the big screen. We miss going to movie theaters and having something be. Beautiful and huge and aesthetically um, um, full of wonder and craft, like Lawrence of Arabia. When you watch it on the big screen, it's a completely different movie than the movie you would watch on your iPad <laughs> <laughs> or iPad Mini now. <laughs> yeah, and so we we miss that experience of having ambiguity and complexity up on the large screen it's getting commonplace to have it on your tv screen but we wanted to experience it again one maybe one last time <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> did you ever think that when you were making the matrix that you actually you're like oh yeah this is i mean do you follow any of like the kurzweil stuff or the singularity or any type of you know um you know like that's sort of like Simulacra idea. I mean, it's essentially now, people just, you go, oh, I'm going into the matrix now. It's just become part of our vernacular mm-hmm. of, you know, people living through avatars and people living these whole other consciousness online.
0: I love the genius of Kurzweil's optimism and that he transcends <laughs> all of the typical traditional conflicts that we project onto this idea of machine versus human. Right. Um, in, in soon, you know consciousness develops in the machines and and this instantly suggests to all of us that conflict is inevitable because you have this slave class of, or this thing that we've been used to using and manipulating will now suddenly say hey stop using and manipulating me <laughs> but, <laughs> but he his genius is so beautiful and so optimistic that he just jumps right over that and says at the that the time that that moment that thing says you know stop using and manipulating me we've already become so attached that we actually are saying hey stop using and manipulating me at the same time it's saying stop using and manipulating oh it's a me.
1: dysfunctional symbiotic relationship <laughs> I of I think it's genius that's
0: <laughs> your auxiliary lobe that you reach for instantaneously you're like hey what is that what is that piece of information it's already attached
1: i had to access my external hard drive it's which is the internet drug. Why I don't need to remember anything anymore. I don't ever need to remember anything. Everything is, we're an, we're an app-based avatar representation of a society now. It's sort of a I I I love hate. I don't know if there's a, is there a word for love hate? Other than just love hate where it's like, it's so great that we have all this at our fingertips. And so horrible that we don't really relate to one another anymore on a human level or ever have to remember anything ever again.
0: Well, that's so awesome. God. That's so many complex subjects there, Chris. First, you need therapy. Okay, all right, <laughs> let's do it.
1: Let's work it out right now.
0: <laughs> um, I think there is something always beautiful and complex and pathological and dangerous. All development technologically has always brought issues, and um, you know, uh, death and potential birth. Generally, though, technology works towards helping us overcome hardship and suffering, traditional suffering, Mm -hmm. and serves as a means of connectivity and transcendence of differentiation. So I think the Internet and technology has been one of the great sources of the acceleration of overcoming our terror of otherness. Yes. The The younger generation, I mean, I'm a great example. I mean, when I was young, differentiations in gender or sexuality freaked people out. But now this younger generation grows up in sexuality, race, gender. These traditional forms of differentiation in terms of identity are so easily overcome. Well,
1: that's in part of people like you who embrace it and are comfortable with it. And that makes other people say... Oh, I guess that's okay now. Yeah, you but know it's also about access. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You're able to plug in and talk to people through language converters in foreign countries and you interact with them and you realize how much they are like you. And this is um this is the greatest way that you you're able to shed fear and terror of difference.
1: Yeah. Well, we're almost at the hour, which has been...
0: This has been really fun. This has been a fun... Oh, come on.
1: Be honest with us. I'm dead serious. <laughs> I thought Andy was going to hit me a couple times, but he <clears throat> seems okay now. I still might. Be careful. What? What did I... <laughs> no, no. Are you guys... You're working on Jupiter Ascending. Is that is that the project you're working on next? Or can you talk about anything you're working on next? Or, uh, okay. Okay. I just saw the squint. Do
0: we have to go to work already?
1: No. Forget it. <laughs> Fuck it. Fuck it all. Fuck work. <laughs> Work. We just had a nice philosophical uh, discussion about art. Was
0: that too heady for you? No, you it was can...
1: great. Actually, I want to talk about your assistant. What's your, <laughs> what's your assistant's name?
0: She's, she's in love with you. Oh,
1: that's sweet. What's her name? I'll say hi. Er,
0: Amy. Er, hi, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. She's going to melt.
1: Oh, Amy Allegretti. Amy Allegretti. Do you have an assistant that I could say hi to? Because that wouldn't be fair to not...
3: Yeah, I'm sorry to tell you. I think she's never heard of you in her entire life. Because well, she lives in Germany and I is know. Uh, not really listening to you. I, I, I think, Tom,
1: you're not listening to her. Because <laughs> I'm sure a lot of her conversation is Chris Hardwick-centric. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, You know, just... I. W- Here's a question for you. Just what, what do you think is one thing, one way that German culture has benefited from American culture? And what is one way that you think we could learn from you guys? Oh my God.
3: You must be kidding me.
1: <laughs> no, I want a four page report.
3: Um. Well, okay, if, if anyone funny, could just the, see
1: the sadness in Tom's eyes right now, please don't make me do yeah, this.
3: It's a bit of a. You should have asked that an hour ago. the part is, for me, it's the interesting thing is that I feel really at home in both cultures, which is an interesting experience for myself. And I guess I have probably grown into it very much through, you know, actually popular culture and movies, obviously, and that I uh, that there is a that there is a life that can be spent in both cultures so comfortably has also to do with the fact that there is obviously a deeper you know european american connection that has grown over the last 100 years probably that um, that we that we're still not that uh, as aware of as we probably should be and uh yet what we learn from each other is uh, is difficult to say because i mean you know the the political situation at the moment always reminds me of the fact that You know, in Europe we're now struggling with our union a little bit um, and yet we're defending it in its construction because it has a construction that very much tries to um, protect uh, the, uh, the, the individualisms of each culture that's part of it. Sure. You know, it's kind of complex, but at the same time we have to sort of politically be on the same page. Right. And I think... Uh, you know even though it looks like we're struggling very much but that there was a diversified and unified attempt at once you know that it's kind of happening that we're trying to keep it both alive has uh, obvious merits that I think that uh, you know you know the, the United States have this craziness that it sometimes feels like I just saw this movie Beast of the Southern Wild and everybody goes like this is the United States of America. Okay. <laughs> that's the same country that when I step out of the movie theater, I stand on Sunset Boulevard and I'm in the same country. And that's uh, that's crazy, of course. I mean, there's something crazy about it. About the, uh, the, there's something crazy about the concept of having one country be so huge. Yeah. And uh, so that we kind of keep our countries, but work so close together in Europe, I think generally is a really good idea.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, I (laughs) mean, yeah, it's, we're we're basically a country of a bunch of tiny countries. Yes. I don't, it's even weird for me to go to the fucking Valley. I'm like, this is a whole other place,
3: but you've got one government, you know, so that (laughs) is a, that is a different cup of tea. So probably, I think you should, you know, even though we're struggling right now, so everybody would probably say like, Oh, look at the Europeans. (laughs) I think the way we struggle is also based on, you know it's based on exactly that that conflict and uh, the struggling is part of it and i think we will always overcome it and there's something good about that and the other way around is i always really suffer from the from the ridiculous slowness of um excitement that you can put into european's heads and the way that you encourage each other here in 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 this continent, I love it so much. The the the, the general attitude of encouraging each other when you when somebody tries something, that the person that meets that person usually says like, "All oh, right, go for it." Oh yeah, that sounds great, sounds great. <laughs> Whereas in Germany, you usually could hear first of all, "Well, yeah, did you finish your college? Did you <laughs> did you actually? I mean, shouldn't you first learn something else before you do this? Shouldn't you?" I don't know whether that's a really good idea. You know, that's what you hear first. Sure and uh that's that's a cultural beauty that i that i'm actually very in love with.
1: That is an excellent answer that i know you didn't feel like giving, so i appreciate that. <laughs> that is very nice of you. Uh, thanks so much you guys. It was it was really it was really nice to meet you and i hope you had an okay time. Yes, and yes. hello to Amy Allegretti. <laughs> at the end of the podcast, i'm going to Amy Allegretti's house. <laughs> oh I'm bringing some pasta. Amy Allegretti.
0: Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Nancy's love story could have been ripped right out of the pages of one of her own novels. She was a romance mystery writer who happens to be married to a chef. But this story didn't end with a happily ever after. When I stepped into the kitchen, I could see that Chef Brophy was on the ground, and I heard somebody say, call 911. As writers, we'd written our share of murder mysteries. So when suspicion turned to Dan's wife, Nancy, we weren't that surprised. The first person they look at would be the spouse. We understand that's usually the way they do it. But we began to wonder, had Nancy gotten so wrapped up in her own novels... There are murders in all of the books. ...that she was playing them out in real life?